This program is brought to you by Genly Productions. At genlyproductions.com, you can find resources to nourish and inspire, including home retreat kits, home study courses, books, and accessories. You can also join our free Emerging Icons video series, or sign up to get good mail the old-fashioned way and receive our full-color, magazine-ish catalog in your mailbox. Genly Productions. Hold the possibilities in your hands. I'm Jen Lee, and you're listening to Retrospective. My guest today is Michaela Bly. Michaela is a scholar, an educator, an artist, and performer who has appeared on stages and in schools across New York City. Michaela is working on her PhD in educational theater, and she's also currently creating a show for young audiences about New York City and a big, strange museum heist. Here is our conversation. Hi, Michaela. <laughs> Hi, Jen. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm so glad to. Um, I, I met you through the storytelling scene here in New York City. I think I heard you perform before we even met, and we did a Grand Slam show together. And, um, I think that, I think one of the number one reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is that I do a lot of, um, teaching about how to tell stories, but one thing I find it really hard to teach people to do is just how to be comfortable in their own skin and to just like really inhabit their bodies. And I think the thing that makes you one of my favorite people to watch on stage is the way that you're just so completely present 100% as yourself and that's maybe people who aren't local to New York and haven't gotten to see a lot of performances live they may not realize how rare that is thank you <laughs> but I feel like we get people from a lot of different disciplines from from acting backgrounds comedy and um and writers and a lot of times I feel like people go up and there's this kind of sense of persona there yes where they kind of step into their stage (laughs) persona or something like that um but after I see you I always feel like I just have a real sense of who you are so I'm wondering what you can tell us about that like how have you developed that ability what kind of experiences have you had leading up to now to make you feel so comfortable in your own skin behind a microphone under a spotlight um thank you and and I feel really comfortable um up there which is sort of strange um I get incredibly nervous up until the moment I'm behind the microphone and then it just all goes whoosh and I feel so much better Um, And I think there's a couple of things that it's from. The most recent and most significant right now for me is uh, my background as a a teacher. Uh, I taught third grade for a lot of years and still teach whenever I can, even though I'm in school full time. And um, having your own classroom is you being yourself in front of a bunch of people all the time. And the 
more yourself you can be with eight-year-olds, the more successful you can be with eight-year-olds. And so it just was very, um, it was an interesting transition. It's certainly a different animal, obviously, to be on stage at at a slam than to be in front of a class. But the... um, in both of them, you need to be so honest. And that's going to be this sort of thing that connects you to the people that you're talking to. And and in both of them, you have to be totally aware of the people you're talking to. If you're a teacher and you have an idea for a lesson and you think, okay, this is going to be a great lesson. It's going to be so cute. They're going to love it. And you just barrel through and you don't notice that no one likes it and everyone's doing something else and you know three people are having a fight, then you're kind of dead in the water as a teacher. You're not really teaching. You're just delivering something. Um, and I think it works a little bit the same way storytelling, um, that one of the things I love is how it's so essential that it's live, right? That, that it's about the relationship between the person on stage and the people who are having the experience of that story, who are in the audience. And so if you just barrel through and you have your lines and you're like, this is the story I'm going to tell. It's a totally crazy story. Everyone's going to love it. And you just do it. And you don't notice that you've lost them from the third line or from the third thing you said, you're not going to be able to connect to them. Um, And so I think that that's a huge, that's a huge part of what I want to do and what I love to do is like get that, get those people where I am, like help them be where I am Mm -hmm. or or get to where they are, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does. And for people who maybe don't get to be around children all the time, will you say a little bit more about what did you notice happening with the eight-year-olds in your class if you weren't showing up as yourself and if you weren't being honest? And at the beginning of your teaching career, did you have a learning curve there? Did you try to, did you have moments where you tried stepping into third grade teacher yeah. version of Mitchell and had it not fly or something um, how did you figure that out that's that's funny I I wonder if I have never thought about that about what kind of a learning curve there was it felt pretty natural from the beginning then too but I think my so my first year of teaching I taught um, preschool so I taught four-year-olds and four-year-olds um, can like smell insincerity a mile away right if you are if if you're not if you're not honest um just in how you talk to them they'll they'll still respond to you but um I think I got to test it out with them I think I got to develop a teacher persona with them and then by the time I got to third graders the next year they were like adults so I was I was so used to talking to four-year-olds and having to explain how you open a doorknob I mean you have to turn it first and then you pull like those were the kinds of things I was saying to four-year-olds or some kid would come to me and say do you want to hear a mystery and I would say sure and he would show me an extra pair of underwear and I had to sort of explain to him that that had just been static cling inside of his pants but he was genuinely mystified by having found a pair of underwear inside of his pants so those were the kinds of conversations I was having then and then suddenly in 2001, I was with third graders, and um, something 
would happen like politically and they would come in and say, why is this happening? And the idea that that was the kind of thing I had to explain to them, suddenly I was, I was like, oh, I have to really, okay, I have to then just really talk to them. This isn't, this isn't just explaining static cling. This is, you know, there are big questions to be answered and they seemed so grown up because they were asking these complicated things or like telling me these complicated interests they had. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And you talk about this this whole phenomenon, the way that people often just barrel through. Yeah. Premeditate everything and barrel through. Yeah. So. Oh, right. I didn't really answer your question. I'm sorry. I got I got involved thinking about four-year-olds. I feel very nostalgic about kids right now because I haven't been, I haven't had my own classroom for about a year. And so it, it makes me very, um, it makes me really happy to remember and think about. Um, but but in terms of uh, the learning curve also of, of being able to be flexible and reading the room and doing those kinds of things, because um, you asked what how I can tell if an eight-year-old is, isn't there, is that right? Or just what it was about them that made you know that I've got to be my true self. Oh, yeah, I think, oh, then it's I guess... It's not going to fly if I'm... I, I think it's it was it was that experience of going from four year olds to third graders and also seeing other teachers. If you can watch another teacher teach who who is doing that, the barreling through, and you can watch the kids and see how far away they go and how they will do anything but what that teacher wants them to do, like it's not interesting to them. Um, so getting to watch other people sort of fail like that and then failing myself like that as well coming in with something I thought was incredible, amazing, and not having any kind of plan B. So it was this um, this zoo, this math zoo that I wanted to um, do with them. And I didn't even think about, would they, are they interested in animals? This was my first, you know, one of my first things. And it just, no one wanted to do it. They were like, no. I mean, they say, you know, they're going to do it. They're still doing it. But you can see they're sort of doing anything else and they're sharpening their pencil a lot. And I just sort of sat there being like, why is this not working? And so the next time I knew I had to have other ways to do it, I had to change on my feet if I, you know, if it didn't, if it didn't fly. Mm. So... Give us a little bit of a timeline and walk us through how does a third grade teacher end up on stage in New York behind a microphone? Well... How did that happen? To call me a third grade teacher first maybe is a little bit of the illusion. I mean, I did a lot of theater and a lot of improv, especially Mm -hmm. um, in college and before. Um, And then even while I was in New York before last year, um, I was performing... I mean, I did a... I did a lot of sort of storytelling for kids, not fairy tale storytelling, but um, I had a show several years ago, a solo performance for kids um, that was a, just a, an hour long story um, called City of Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a fantasy and it was based on stories that I'd been telling in the classroom for many years. So I was always telling stories to them um, and also always performing. And I was still taking improv classes and, and doing all of that. And um, and when I... Oh, and I also was in... Um, you know, I did 
other kinds of children's theater as well, even while I was a classroom teacher. So that was all sort of part of, like performing was part of it. Um, at the same time, I had discovered writing nonfiction, um, which I'd never done before. I'd never tried it. And um, this was a, a few years ago. Um, a friend of mine runs an amazing website called Frontier Psychiatrist. And it's this, he, it's um, all kinds of, you know, music reviews and non literary nonfiction and all kinds of things. And he had me start writing um, some of their cycling columns, their bike columns. And I was just writing these very short form nonfiction pieces about bicycling, about my experience of bicycling in the city. Um, and so by the time I get to the moth, it feels like I'm putting those things together. I'm putting together this um, way of shaping truth and way of shaping my experience and my experience being on stage, you know, letting it all. It feels like it all comes together in that moment. It does all come together in that moment. Yeah. And now you're getting your PhD mm-hmm. in educational theater. Mm-hmm. So again, you're like weaving those two pieces together. Yeah. And a lot of the thinking that I'm doing, I mean, I'm going to try really hard not to nerd out about theory on this podcast, <laughs> but um, a lot of the a lot of the thinking that I'm doing so far in school as I'm doing my PhD is about narrative theory and the ways that we shape our experience through story. Mm-hmm. So the ways that we shape our experience through story and the ways that we learn through story and the, and how those things interact. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are really into looking at the way our brain structures memory in story so that we ha- we store memories as these scripts, these stories, and also that when things happen to us and we tell them, we can reframe even what we experience of those things based on how we frame the story about it, right? right. So that's, that's some of the stuff that I'm interested in. <laughs> those are some of my favorite topics. <laughs> I could nerd out about that all day. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> Um, so have you ever, how does that work then when you're telling your story and when you're on stage now that you have this, um, this knowledge that says I can't just barrel through, I have to be aware of the audience. Like, have you ever switched up anything midstream? Well, it's less about switching something up because the audience isn't going to, right. The audience is more polite than eight year olds. So the audience isn't going to suddenly like raise their hand and go, I need to go to the bathroom right now, (laughs) or I need to sharpen my pencil. You don't get as many clues from them. Um, but, uh, rather than changing midstream, what's more likely to happen. And one of the reasons why I think it's so much more honest of a form than just delivering a monologue in terms of being yourself in front of them is if you get a response about one part of it, it's going to help you remember something else, right? That you're, you're mm-hmm. getting, while you're telling it, you're also remembering things. Your, your storytelling is not finished when you've prepared your story. And so if you remember something else and you've got memorized lines, you're going you're gonna to think that in your head, but you're going to go ahead with your planned monologue. And if you're open and you're able to say, oh, you know, and now that I think of it, he actually wasn't even that tall, or or whatever you know. The, mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous example, but you know what, you know what I'm saying. Um, that that you're gonna feel like you're having a conversation. So if it reminds you of something, you're gonna be able to say it. Or if it if you decide 
um, I'm just thinking uh, of this story I told recently. Can I give any? Yes, yeah. please. A story I told recently um, when I, it was a story about high school. and You can tell us the story if you want. Oh, I, well. I, it, or however much you need. Okay, yeah. So it was a story that I told at the Moth uh, a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago, about um, my high school English teacher and being in love with my high school English teacher. And there had been another girl who was also in love with my high school English teacher. And I was sort of very brainy and I didn't have a lot of friends. And um, she was she was really sexy. Like that's what I remember about her, that she was, and I was not sexy at all mm-hmm. at 15. <laughs> and it's not a word you would use to associate with me at 15. Um, and so this, so I had sort of constructed this story as I was preparing to tell it, as this thing of me being this sort of like pudgy, brainy girl who didn't have a hope, and and this girl being this very sexy girl, and literally as I was telling it, I realized that I had so much to offer at that point. Like I saw myself with the same, you know, sort of the way a high school English teacher not the way that that one did, but the way an adult would see a 15 year old with like, oh, you know, you've got a lot, you've got a lot going on. You don't have that, but you've got a lot going on. And I felt this great um, approval of myself at that age. So instead of becoming, instead of being as it was planned to be a story about this sort of pathetic 15 year old, I sort of got to be a little proud of myself and go, you know what? I was actually quite smart and mature and I didn't have that part going on, but that part comes later. And I found a perspective about it as I was telling it. Now, if I had if I had kept with my original plan, I don't think the story would have read as well. I think it would have felt very um, like self-pitying a little bit if the story is just about poor me, I was such an awkward teenager. Um, but it turned out that the crowd was really excited about all of the like nerdy parts of me. I was telling them about my favorite Shakespeare sonnet and how I had the same favorite Shakespeare sonnet as my high school English teacher. This was a legit thing. We were really close. That's We really liked that. It so happened that the crowd was really into that. I mean, I got a lot of response about it, and I felt really good about that, and I let them make me feel good about having had this nerdy connection with this English teacher. <laughs> Um, and, and, and the, the end of the story had been, I mean, I'm not really telling it, but the end of the story had been, I had bought him this, um, gift of this full set of Shakespeare books to say goodbye to him, to sort of tell him how much I loved him. And I, I thought it was such a good idea. And then I suddenly realized it wasn't, it was a pathetic idea. And then giving them to him he really responded to me as a friend. He, like, saw them and sort of got really emotional, and it was really satisfying to have the nerdy part of me recognized and have that that piece of it. Yeah. Mm, I love that. I think one thing, hearing you tell that, that makes me think of is... I think one of the primary distinctions between doing story work versus um, just simply writing, which, you know, there's this kind of whole world around writing and how to write and how to do essays, and we've all been 
schooled in that for years and years. Yeah. And a lot of story work has to do for me with unschooling myself from those things. One of the things that is interesting about story work is that it's not one-sided. It's not in a vacuum and that the listening actually transforms that has this conversational nature even if one person is on stage behind a microphone and everyone else is sitting politely in the audience. Yep. That it's still having that transforms it. So I think about how, how first of all it gives you a container right and one of the things i love about the story audiences in new york is they're so extraordinarily generous yes um yes. compared to other audiences you might find at say stand-up comedy where people might have their arms crossed and be resistant like just you better just make me try laugh to make me yeah. laugh but there's kind of this stinginess about it, like i'm gonna make you really work for it yeah but you never find that in a story crowd everyone's there because they love a good story when you step on stage, they want you to do well. So there's this like extraordinary generosity that makes it really a safe place. Absolutely. And we tell stories that I don't think would ever get told in the same way without having that container. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think in the same, on, on a different side of that too, the audience is going to love you for being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And if you do get up and tell a story that's meant to just make you look good and that's the purpose of it, mm -hmm. they're going to know that too. And so they're, they're like generous and also keep you honest. Yeah. There's some, there's some elegant word for that that I can't think of. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. Yeah. It's totally true. And I think the other thing I, the parallel I like to draw for people is that not not everybody lives in New York City. Not everyone's cup of tea is to ever tell anything like this publicly. Right. But that even inside of a private venue like a friendship, mm -hmm. like even to tell a story, to allow yourself to like let go of looking good and to let one friend see that vulnerable moment that that can be just as transformative oh that's interesting so that the experience of that a friend telling another friend something vulnerable is that friend as audience and you as storyteller it's just no microphone right. that's gorgeous right yeah so people I just don't want people to exclude themselves and be like I would never do that or that's just for a certain select people oh yeah absolutely because the gift that um the giving your story to another person is, and the gift that having someone receive it and honor it, yep. that that's something that all you need is one safe person to um, experience that. Yeah, because that's almost separate from the performing of it. The performing mm -hmm. of it is, it, obviously they're linked and they're together, but you're right that the microphone isn't even the necessary part. Mm -hmm. The story is the necessary part. Right. The, there's storyteller, story, audience. Mm -hmm. It's not storyteller, microphone, housing works, big line, audience. Mm -hmm. um, that's true. That's true. And I think that that's... Be, doing it makes you a, a really good listener as well in other contexts. I think having the experience of 
of shaping a story and telling it and doing those things um, makes you able to listen to other people's stories in those other contexts better. I hope. I don't know. But I hope that's true. I hope that's true, too. And I think, just as we're talking about this, I'm realizing that one of my biggest struggles when I did start writing and doing story work is that one of my inheritances, <laughs> for better or for worse, mm-hmm. is that I was, I was truly raised to be so concerned about the audience even if it was just one person. Mm-hmm. You know, I was told, I was instructed to never write anything down in a journal or a diary that I didn't want the whole world to read. <laughs> wow. Like, there was just this sense of like, that protecting the other person, even if they were like an abstract possibility wow. of a person, trumped truth telling. So I was always so concerned like, to really know who I was talking to. And, like, if I had just met you, I would be really trying to feel out mm-hmm. where are you coming from? You know, where are you coming from religiously, politically, <laughs> you know? What is your background before I share too much so that I can take care of you yeah, and not make you uncomfortable, wow. right? So, so th- that was so hard. So, even then, so first I started doing work online Mm -hmm. which is just a nightmare for that kind of thing because you literally have the whole world it's this anonymous hypothetical audience and even now it's hard for me to sometimes say what I want to say because I'm trying to take care of people but in New York at a story show I think it was the first place where I felt really clear that I didn't need to take care of anybody you know? Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because I thought I was listening just now thinking about not just the taking care of the audience, but also taking care of the people who the story is about. Exactly. I yeah. Know. That was a major thing. Yeah, because I was always taught you preserve people's reputation. Right. You don't absolutely. gossip, which means don't gossip was code for don't ever tell a story with another person in it. But every story you have. How can you do that? So it was like, just don't tell, period. <laughs> so that's how that arc went. Wow. Um, and I couldn't protect the people my stories were about online. I couldn't protect them by publishing something in Barnes & Noble. Right. But I could show up and tell a room of strangers. <laughs> right. And I felt like I could contain that a little bit. Yeah. And that these people didn't know me. They didn't need me to be any particular way. And I think that was really like my my first taste of freedom. And I'm still, I still feel like I don't even, I've lost kind of how many years I've been doing this now. I still feel like I'm only in about to my ankles. Well, I, that part terrifies me. It just terrifies me. Because I I really do have stories about things that I'm not ready to expose the other people. Mm-hmm. Even if I change the names, even if I change the circumstances, all of those things. I mean, truth is truth. And it's I, I, I am not even ready to let that person know, even if no one else does, um, sort of what... What that meant to you. What that meant to me, what mm. that was for me. Um, and I feel like... So so in in college I was um 
the uh, assistant to the curator of uh, one of the curators at a rare book library. Um, and there were in the stacks. So I had something which was unheard of, which was keys to the stacks, which they would never have given an undergraduate now, but that's what they did. And in the stacks, there were these, there was this long row of gray archive boxes sealed with wax seals and with yellow police tape across them. What? And they were, they were like yellow police tape, like three rows of yellow police tape on these three rows of gray boxes all the way down this aisle. I mean, it, it was crazy. And they were the Georgia O'Keeffe papers. And Georgia O'Keeffe had um, willed every single thing she wrote or did to this library. So all of her journals, all of the letters, her entire collection of books. The books she allowed to be opened, I think, I wish I could remember this, but I'm not sure, but all of her papers and journals and letters were sealed until, let me make sure I get this right, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, um, the year 2000 or when everyone on this long list of people is dead. So she gave a yeah. list of all the people she knows, and she was like, when these people die, you can open these. Otherwise, they're sealed. And they were waxy. Like, she was so protective of all of that. And that really, that image is really strong in my head about there are places in my experience that are like wax-sealed, police tape, do not access until some arbitrary moment that I can, like, open it up and write about it or tell about it. Um, and I don't know if that's good. I don't know. Like, I know writers especially who just say you got to do it you just have to like make enemies or whatever but I don't I can't no I can't either and um I also I think that I've I've had to make peace with that myself and be like I need there to be a public and private yeah distinction yeah um but how do you tease those things out I know for me sometimes if I tell one hard story I even had this happen like last fall where I told one hard, hard story in private to one person mm. but just that it felt like it shook things loose mm. and all of a sudden like even though it's still clear that story wasn't going to happen on stage yeah. I had like three more that I felt like shook yeah. loose and I could like it built my courage do you feel like for you, there are some things where you're like, nope, the vault is sealed on those. <laughs> Everything else is fair game. Or do you feel like as you've been going through your stories, do you think that things, do you think that over time you'll be able to reach into some of those places? Absolutely. Um, absolutely, I think so. And I think lots of things are connected. So I actually had an experience exactly like that. And it was telling a story it wasn't telling a story to one person, but it was telling a story in a place where I knew it wasn't being recorded. Mm -hmm. um, and it was at BTK Band, mm -hmm. at Peter Aguero's band, which was such an amazing experience. It was so fun. And it was a story I would literally never have told if there were any kind of recording equipment in the room. Um, and just the experience of doing that got me to okay if I can do that then here are all the things that that reminds me of and here are all the things that I can talk about surrounding what that story was um, and I, 
And there's also just these arbitrary moments in time where suddenly I, I sort of opened my eyes and went, oh, okay, now I feel ready to tell that story. Or now it's been long enough since that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, or now I feel brave enough to say to the person involved, I'm going to tell a story about you. Is that okay? Because that's something that I've done before as well, um, especially involving kids. Because I tell stories about my students sometimes, and I want to protect their privacy. I want to make sure that it's okay. So if it's a story that's in any way personal for the kid um, or for the parents or for the family, then I'll talk to them and say, I'm going to do this. I hope that's okay. Let me know and get their okay before I tell it. Mm. So maybe that's not a personal story about me. That's more about protecting privacy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's a good way to take care of people though. And make you feel like you're still able to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, if it's something about a fight that I had with a friend or a, a really complicated moment with an ex-boyfriend or something like that, if it's not been long enough, then I'm not touching it yet. But when it comes to kids, it's a little more maybe clear-cut mm-hmm. to be able to say, well... I I think we people can probably imagine what happens when people tell stories too soon oh. and how in the audience you kind of feel like oh my gosh they're using me as their therapist yep you know yep that it has a totally different feeling to it yep when people don't have enough distance to have a certain amount of perspective or there's something about people still processing it I don't know how do you describe that well I think there's two kinds of that there's one where it's it happened last Thursday and I just need to get this out and tell you what happened and so then it's just we're your friend and you're doing that long narrative that like rambling I imagine they're on their cell phone walking down Broadway just like describing every single thing that happened right Um, and then there's also I sometimes see this too very young people telling stories mm-hmm. often they don't have pers- they don't have perspective not only on that one story that happened but in general they're still living the parts they're going to have perspective on later and so that's a that's a hard thing too like you see someone get up at a slam who's 20 and is still really figuring out what they're about and what things happened and they don't they don't have that extra layer of this is this they they have the this is what happened and they don't have a and this is what it means to me mm-hmm. or what it means in the like greater pattern of my life mm-hmm. which is the part that I think you're talking about this perspective um I think that Watching people tell the like their the therapy stories, mm-hmm. um, you can really appreciate that it's good for them. <laughs> you can be really happy for them that they did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I don't I actually don't find myself often begrudging them their time on stage. <laughs> but it's in a totally different world than are they a good storyteller or did they capture me? Mm-hmm. I'm like I'm glad I'm very glad that you got to do that. That's great. Um, but. There's not an art there. Mm-hmm. And the art part is the perspective. The art part is where the... Um, or the craft, sorry. Mm-hmm. Art or craft. I don't know which one. But um, that's where the perspective comes in. Finding images that are evocative and like letting us see them 
as 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 having this as having meanings other than what they just what they were mm-hmm. you know so um so tell us a little bit about what your what you're creating for the future because you're getting your phd mm-hmm. and um and what what are you hoping what are you hoping to be doing on the other side so <laughs> um i just i was just reading do you know the column dear sugar no I love Dear Sugar. It's this woman named Cheryl Strayed. She's a writer, and she has been writing this advice column for the rumpus.net. And I've just discovered her, and everything she says is truth. It's amazing. She she really writes about herself. When she gives answers to advice columns, she really is writing about herself when she mm-hmm. does it. And someone wrote to her, an entire undergraduate English class wrote to her saying we're getting our degrees in English can you give us some advice for the future we're very scared about the future and can you give us some advice and she gave them adorable advice and then at the end she said people are going to ask you what you want to do with your degree Um, and you can say a lot of different things and one thing I suggest is say I will carry it with me as I do all things that matter Mm. and that has been stuck in my head lately Mm. because that's what I'm going to do after I get this degree is the same thing I'm doing while I get the degree. I'll yeah. just also have the degree. It's really time to be growing projects and exploring research and establishing, you know, what, what it is I, I want to be, I want to be pursuing. I was a classroom teacher for so many years and feeling like I wasn't allowed to be an artist because I was a classroom teacher and people would ask me, are you an artist? And I would say, I'm a classroom teacher. And so I'm I'm growing into being able to say, no, I'm a scholar and I'm an artist and I make things and I you know, do these other things as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they all have to do with kids and learning, um, or most of them, but, but I'm allowed to have these other pieces of myself, you know? That's what I feel like it's giving me is time and space and brilliant people with whom to be all these other pieces mm-hmm. that I can be, that I am, you know. So um, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking back at these shows that I used to write for kids. Um, this this solo piece I want to revisit and create more of, um, and doing storytelling with kids that's true also. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how that fits in the moth and storytelling in general has really opened up a lot of possibilities that way. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, the people that I'm working with while I'm in school are really, um, are really interesting. And, and to be able to take people who do theater for young audiences and people who do Educate, hardcore education research and people who do technology with kids and to be able to put them together and make something um, totally new and different is very exciting to me. I love that. Yeah. And I think even with the true stories, I think kids are more hungry for that yeah. than people realize. Yeah. We had a really good friend of ours stay with us this summer and help us out with the girls and my daughters literally mind her of every story she could possibly recall. 
like all the way back to even stories about when she was a baby that her mother had told her. <laughs> like they knew about every birthday party. Yep. She's 20 years old. That's like 20 birthday parties. Yep. And I mean, they just, you know, we'd sit down for dinner and they'd say, tell us again about the time you drank camel's milk in Africa. I mean, luckily she also had, you know, was a traveler and an artist. Yeah, and yeah. Had interesting things, even at age 20 to say, but they were just not going to leave a single stone unturned. And and part of that is, and this is another thing that I'm really interested in as well, um, part of that is ki- I, I, I see kids wanting to know that we were kids. Mm-hmm. And the more connected we are to having been kids, the easier we are to like talk to and um, relate to right mm-hmm. the the idea that we were children and the way that that works because that means that they will be adults like they're like they're sort of piecing out all of that stuff too and so they're they're collecting up all this um, stuff from us uh, um, they're collecting up all this stuff from us as this way of of knowing us as children mm-hmm. I used to that's actually one of the things I used to do a lot with third graders is we'd always have these weird 15 minute chunks of time where we just had to like keep them somewhere until it was time for lunch or keep them somewhere until it stopped raining or whatever it was going to be. And, um, so my, my, my go-to was stories from my childhood exactly the same way. And they would just, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be that interesting. They would literally not be that interesting. (laughs) They were not the greatest stories, but but kids would be riveted mm. because it would be about me at eight years old and what I wanted when I was eight years old and what it was like. Mm. And I mean, when I was eight years old was my the year that I lived in England, so that was always very exotic for them. But still, not that interesting always. <laughs> um, yeah, fascinating. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Um, I had a great time. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retrospective. I'm your host, Jen Lee. Meet me back here for more conversations and stories about where we are and how we got here on Retrospective.